how can you mobilize a community to demand their human rights when they actually don't have any concept of it? Hello everyone, my name is John and I am very excited to be the newest member of the Assyrian Podcast. I represent the fine city of Chicago, Illinois, and of course the surrounding area. Because what is an Assyrian podcast without the great city of Chicago and all of the great Assyrians that live in the Chicagoland area, and of course everywhere else, but you know, I'm a little, I'm a little protective of my hometown. And you're listening to episode 23 of the Assyrian podcast, so happy to have done this one. It's not every day you can sit and have a conversation with someone who influences and fights for an entire group of people. I had that privilege to speak with Rain Henna, co-founder and director of the Assyrian Policy Institute. She does just that, fights and wields influence. In this episode, Rain discusses her influence and motivation to be a powerful voice, along with talking about her trips to the homeland, which brought about a very important piece of writing. Thank you to every single listener for your support. Whether you've been listening to the Assyrian podcast since day one or just began listening, find us and follow us on social media, you can help us by spreading the word and telling your friends to visit us on our website, AssyrianPodcast.com, where they can follow the links to subscribe using an iPhone or any Android device. We're also excited to announce that you can now find all of our episodes streaming on Spotify. Most importantly, subscribe and review the podcast that helps us get featured. We greatly appreciate you being part of our global family of Assyrian Podcast listeners. Finally, a huge thank you to our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you are thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John Oshana, real estate professional, at 209-968-9519, on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor, or at John.Oshana on Instagram. Without further ado, here is episode 23 with Rain Henna. Rain, thank you so much for joining us today. First things first, one of the things that I'm mostly curious about above all else, before we get into Assyrianism, before we get into what you do, what your background is, how did you get your name? <laughs> that is a question I get a lot. My name is actually French. My father grew up in Lebanon, where French is one of the official languages thanks to French colonialism. And so uh, my father had a younger sister whose name was Rain, who he was very close with. But sadly, she passed away when she was about nine years old oh. due to leukemia. And so when I was named, I was named in her honor. And uh, it was either Rain or Laura. So even though growing up, I sort of wished I had a quote unquote normal name, um, you know, I. Uh, have come to appreciate my name and its significance to uh, my family. You're definitely a rain to me. Laura is not, <laughs> is not something I envision you as yeah, at all. I, I think uh, most people would agree. <laughs> That's a touching story. I mean, I was named, for example, after my grandfather. Do you ever get your dad or anybody else in your family who say you are just like your aunt, even though she passed away at such a young age? You know, I the, some people do talk about a resemblance, but... My father is a very private person, and the only thing that he's really shared about her is how much he loved her and how much her loss impacted him. 
one of the things that you are known for within the community is that you co-authored uh, a human rights report entitled Erasing Assyrians, and that's based on your trip to Iraq in 2016 going into 2017. Uh, just tell us all about that. So the report was published by the Assyrian Confederation of Europe, and I co-authored the report with my friends Matthew Barber, who has done extensive work with the Yazidi community, and Max Joseph and Mardine Isaac. And um, as you mentioned, the report was largely based on my trip to Iraq. Um, so I traveled to Iraq in December 2016 and was there through January 2017. Um, so the reason that I went to Iraq was really to get a better sense of our issues and the challenges facing Assyrians and other minoritized groups in Iraq and really be able to experience and observe things for myself. So initially I had spoken to the Assyrian Confederation of Europe about writing a report that was focused on the various needs. So initially we thought it was going to be a needs assessment report, particularly for the communities in the end of the plane. But as I met with different people across both the territory that's under the Kurdistan regional government, as well as the liberated areas of the Ninive Plain, I realized that there was a much bigger story to tell. And so I had somewhat of an understanding of the issues facing our people in Iraq prior to arriving there. So you had, had you been to Iraq before no, this, this trip? Was my first that was your first time. time. Okay. Yeah, and it was really eye-opening because I think as Assyrians who have had the privilege of growing up in a country that, you know, is democratic and... Um, you can speak freely it, yeah, about the speak, government. Exactly. Yeah. And a government that adheres to the rule of law. Um, we have a, a different perspective. And so... Um, there was a, I tell this story all the time, so my friends that are listening are probably going to roll their eyes, but there was a really defining moment of my trip when I was in a town called Peshkabur, um, which is in the north, so it's under Kurdistan regional government jurisdiction. And I met with the family there and asked them to essentially walk me through their daily life. And so it was a husband, a wife, and there are two children who were teenagers and the husband's sister. And in our conversation, she walked me through her day to day. And I won't you know, go over all of the details, but she told me that they barely get electricity, which means that in the winters are really cold and the summers are very hot. She said that they um, that the lack of electricity also causes other problems, like, for instance, the inability to preserve food. She turned on, I still distinctly remember this, she turned on the water faucet and out came water that was brown in color. Mm. And she said to me, we can't use this water, we can't drink it. Um, but she said, we wash our clothes in this and we sometimes use this to cook. And then she took me to her bathroom and turned on the faucet there, again, the same color of water. And she said to me, it's humiliating to have to shower in this water. And so every aspect of their life was a challenge. 
And when I asked them very, uh, very simply, very plainly, I said, do you blame the government? Of course, these are all public services. Um, she responded to me, no. And in Assyrian, she said, you know, they're not bothering us. So it became so clear to me in that moment where me as an outsider, I can easily, you know, observe things, point to them and, and know the, you know, the root causes for somebody that's living in, in that situation. They have oftentimes, and of course, this isn't true of all, but I observed that many Assyrians have deeply internalized this idea that they're second-class citizens and for the most part have accepted um, that reality. And so it became a struggle for me internally, now that I have this new perspective on our struggle, to think how can we possibly mobilize a community to advocate for their rights or fight for their rights in whatever form that might look like, whether it's a protest or, um, you know, voting. How can you mobilize a community to demand their human rights when they actually don't have any concept of it? So it really introduced a new element for me and um, really, I guess, deepened my understanding of, of the, pro the problems that we face. And this was all detailed in the report, obviously. It is, yeah. That's, I mean, that's fascinating, yeah, on the ground level stuff. So this became, this was actually a year or two before you co-founded uh, the Assyrian Policy Institute. Correct. Uh, this is the co-founders, uh, Dr. John Michael and John Coriel. Uh, tell us about what the primary function and role of the Assyrian Policy Institute is. Sure. So the Assyrian Policy Institute was founded earlier this year in May of 2018 ahead of the Assyrian National Policy Conference that was hosted by the Assyrian American National Federation. And the institute was founded to support Assyrians as they struggle to maintain their rights to the lands that they have inhabited for thousands of years, to their ancient language and heritage, and to equal opportunities in education and employment, and to full participation in public life. And so I'm fortunate enough through my work to have established colleagues and contacts on the ground in Iraq and other parts of our homeland. But I recognize that most people do not necessarily have this access or have the opportunity to return home. And so the more I spoke to members of our community, the more it became clear to me that the lack of action that so many of us complain about was largely due to a lack of awareness. So the Assyrian Policy Institute exists firstly to educate and empower our community with accurate and up-to-date information, and secondly to mobilize. Um, we hope that educating people on these issues that are affecting Assyrians in their homeland will then mobilize them to speak truth to power. Um, and if I can just also add Sometimes when I speak to Assyrians about these issues, they say things like, I don't want to get involved, I don't like to get political, um, and essentially they default into this neutrality which hurts our cause more than they might realize. There's a famous quote by Elie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor, he said, neutrality always serves the oppressor and never the oppressed. 
And so in my view, if you've chosen to be neutral in situations of injustice, you've effectively chosen the side of the oppressor. And so me personally, I'm a firm believer for advocating for people's rights, uh, for our people's rights, um, regardless of the odds. And now as the Assyrian Policy Institute, we certainly won't be building false hopes. Um, we are committed to being honest about expectations and um, also fully transparent in everything that we do. We have a great team. We mentioned a couple of them earlier. John Coriel, Max Joseph, Walita Kemp, and, um, Alan Mushik, Stefan Youssef, and Amanda Slefo. And of course, we work in coordination with other organizations as well, like the Assyrian American National Federation, the Assyrian Confederation of Europe, and the Center for Canadian-Assyrian Relations, among others. So you saw two different sort of voids where you saw that there was an issue with people didn't know what was going on, and then there were the people who either did know what was going on or didn't want to know what was going on and claim ignorance because it was just too much for them to deal with or whatever various reason they had. So Assyrian Policy Institute kind of is hoping to plug those holes and educate people. So what is one of the methods for getting the message out there and educating more Assyrians as to what is going on in the homeland and even at home. Sure. Or I should say at home in Canada, the United States, and wherever else Assyrians may reside. Sure. So um, if you visit our website, assyrianpolicy.org, we do have a tab that's called Issues. And if you click on it, you'll see that it's broken down by country. And then you can select a country, for instance, Syria. And if you click on you know, the tab that says Syria, you'll get a list of the issues that are of you know, real or significant importance there. So there's a short summary, and then you'll also see our recommendations for solutions. Rain, you went from being a English lit major who wanted to teach children <laughs> to now that you're a, uh, a political advocate, a, just an advocate for an entire <laughs> race of people, an entire ethnic background of people. Uh, take us kind of back a little bit a few years. You know, you're in college, you're an English lit major, you wanted to teach. What kind of made a separate light bulb, so to speak, go off and cause you to sort of change course onto something completely different? That's a great question. I So as you mentioned, I was committed to a career in education. Um, I was you know, in college pursuing an, a degree in secondary education, as you mentioned, English literature. Um, and the more I got involved in the community and the more I learned about the issues impacting Assyrians in the homeland, the more I realized that I had an obligation to, to do this work. And, um, you know, I got involved with various initiatives and projects, and eventually I realized that um, this is something that I needed to do professionally, um, and I hoped that there would be an opportunity for you know me to potentially make it my nine to five, although admittedly sometimes it goes longer than that. When did that uh, happen though? I mean, there, there had to have been some point where you just kind of went from, uh, you know, wanting to do this specific thing to, to mm -hmm. teach kids from all over. When, when did that happen where you kind of went into a point of wanting to do more for Assyrians? Like, or I should say when and what caused that kind of to, to sort of go off in the brain and to do everything that you do now? 
I don't know that there was a specific moment where that light bulb went off or you know if there was one particular incident that really triggered you know this change I think that it was more gradual I had been involved in the community for several years at that point and uh, you know what I'll, I'll go ahead and blame um, some of my friends so <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I named them earlier but uh, my friends Mardine, Max, Walita and Michael who I have had the pleasure of working with, but I've also learned so much through them and their work. So I think that they were influencers, I think you could say. You know, Walita and Michael um, and Max actually have have done this work um, in years past, and so I think that um, that they inspired me to, to do this work and, and to get more seriously involved. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Mardine and Max are both based in England? Yeah, yeah. So, are. I mean, you're globally connected now. How did, <laughs> how did that relationship come to be about with you guys working together and kind of inspiring one another? Um, you know, I think that it's... So, with Mardine, um, it started... He wrote this fantastic article on Assyrians in Syria that was published, I believe, at the end of 2015, in December 2015. And I remember reading it and then subsequently reaching out to him. And, you know, it just, uh, I guess that's what started it. So I had, you know, that initial conversation with him. I had so many questions. And then through, you know, Mardine, I met Max and, and then through them, I connected with Walita, who's actually here, and um, I guess... Did your family members ever kind of notice you branching out and becoming, you know, even more Assyrian than you were previously? <laughs> yeah, they, um, they definitely noticed, um, and at first I don't think that they realized how important it was to me or how important it had become, but through time, I think, as they saw the work that we were doing, um, my mother especially, really came to understand and appreciate, you know, the work and uh, the commitment that we have. And I think my mom is always, you know, a little bit concerned that that I might be putting, you know, my own ambition and life on hold until I think she really realized that this work is a part of me and a part of so many others that do it. And um, So and you don't see come. yourself as putting anything on hold. This is your life and your aspirations. Yeah, and like I said earlier, I'm, uh, this isn't true of many Assyrians that do this work, um, but I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity now to do this work and to you know, make my living in this way. Did you ever think at any point where you would have a nine to five job that's centered around all of this? Doesn't it kind of do you ever sit back and think to yourself, wow, I could be sitting in a office cubicle looking <laughs> at spreadsheets all day, but instead I'm doing all of this. And, and I can only imagine how different it would be if I just kind of lived this different life. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have, I don't think I ever thought I would end up in an office looking at spreadsheets. Um, my vision was always a classroom, and I'll be honest, there are some days, especially now when I see my friends who are teachers, you know, they'll be posting about how they're decorating their classrooms and preparing for the upcoming school year, and there is, um, you know, a slight, like, what if um, there, but I'm completely happy doing the work that I'm doing, and I think that this is part of me following 
my calling. And I don't want to get too um, spiritual or religious, but I do think that everyone has a calling. And I think that I, I do believe in fate. And, and so I do think that my life unfolded in, in a certain way and um, that I am where I'm meant to be. So I'm going to take this back into the way back machine again. Uh, at the way beginning of your uh, Assyrian involvement, you started a blog online. Uh, tell us the name of that blog and what that was all about and what inspired you to start that. The blog was called Nineveh Lives. And um, I founded it when I was 19. It was inspired by my uncle Munir, who lives in New Zealand. And I ended up going to New Zealand after high school for uh, my cousin's wedding. And during that trip, I had the opportunity to really connect with my uncle, who is very passionate about Assyrian issues. So it kind of took being not involved in your youth, probably maybe because of the American culture being so prevalent in your life, it took a trip to New Zealand to kind of open up your eyes because your uncle, who was obviously very nationalistic and everything like that, kind of opened your eyes up to what, what it is to represent your community and be a big part of that. Definitely. So I owe a lot of that to him. So when I returned um, from that trip, I was inspired to get involved somehow, and I realized that the first thing that I needed to do was to learn more. So I was inspired really by um, a historian named Stubbs Turkle, who is famous for documenting oral histories. And that's why I created this blog. So essentially through the blog, I would conduct interviews with members of our community. Just, just any members in general? It could be your mm -hmm. next door neighbor if they were a Syrian? Okay, exactly. very cool. And um, so I would conduct interviews with them and just document their story. And my goal was essentially to piece together a mosaic of who the Assyrian people are through these individual stories. Um, admittedly, the blog was short-lived, but um, you know, I ran it for a year and a half. And, and through the blog, I was able to make so many connections with different people, like, for instance, Autorina Zumaya, um, who reached out to me through my blog, and um, that's how we connected. And she had just founded a Syrian kitchen, so um, she was one of my first interviews. And also, um, Sargun Saadi, um, I met him through, you know, the blog. So it, it really did forge these links with members of our community that ultimately ended up sucking me in deeper um, into the Assyrian community here. What's been the work that you are most proud of? That's a difficult one. Um, I Firstly, I'd like to say that I hope that the answer to this question in the future will be something, you know, of different. Of course, <laughs> always but, evolving. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as of now, I would have to say Erasing Assyrians, the report that we published last year, and, and I say that, one, um, because of the exposure that the report got, you know, it was uh, cited, for instance, in, in Foreign Policy magazine, a White House official referenced it in a U.S. Senate hearing, and, and so that was, of course, you know, incredible, and that wasn't what we were expecting, you know, when we were writing the report, but I think I'm more proud of it um, because of 
the amount of work that went into writing it, I mean, it's 115 pages long, but more because that report was really a learning experience for me. A lot of the issues I was familiar with, but in order to write about them and publish about them, obviously it required much more research, and so it was a challenge. Um, and something I don't think I mentioned earlier, um, when I returned from Iraq, I, you know, shared my notes with our, our team and, uh, you know, Martine and Max at the time, and we drafted a report that was about 20 pages long. It was far less ambitious, um, and it was strictly based on what I had seen. And so we tabled it for a while, and the situation was rapidly changing as the Kurdistan regional government announced the referendum to take place later that year. And the and, and I think this is true of a lot of people who visit our homeland for the first time. When I came back, I was very, I don't know how to say, like I was very, it was very difficult for me to put what I had seen and witnessed out of my mind. And it affected everything, you know, that I did for, for months, um, it became very difficult for me to, you know, readapt to my day-to-day -day life, and it just didn't seem fair that, you know, um, that I got to live, you know, this comfortable life in Skokie, Illinois, and there were people just like me living a very different life, and, and one that was much more complicated and much more challenging. And so writing this report was actually a way of um, working through some of that sadness. It was cathartic. Yeah. And so looking back on it, it really is um, something that I'm proud of. And I'm so proud to have worked, you know, with Matthew and Mardine and Max. Um, and, and it was so impactful <laughs> that you mentioned that it was referenced in a Senate hearing in Washington, D.C. So I'm actually going to circle back a little bit to the policy conference in D.C. that took place. And you said the AANF was the one that organized that conference, right. and it was the first one ever. Uh, the Policy Institute, right. obviously, a big part of that. Uh, what do you think the overall awareness level is on Capitol Hill when it comes to Assyrians and our situation? I think that our side of the story, I'll say, is not often told on Capitol Hill or elsewhere in Washington, D.C. I think that now, as more Assyrians are getting involved in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere, there is a larger awareness, and, you know, we hope to contribute to that as well. But for the most part, I think that the issues that are impacting Assyrians are largely unreported and unknown in, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. circles. But I think that, you know, the conference that was spearheaded by the ANF was a step towards changing that. It was the first time that such a gathering uh, for Assyrians and by Assyrians took place in Washington, D.C. And that really was Martin Humaran's vision. So Martin is the president of the Federation. And when we first discussed uh, planning this conference, his goal was, or he was moved by the 
lack of awareness and after recognizing that so often when there are other conferences or panels held on issues impacting Assyrians and other minorities that we were left out of the conversation, that our perspective was never on that panel and so Martin was really committed to creating the space where our voices could be elevated and where our voices would be heard and I think that you know, if you talk to anybody that was there, they'll um, tell you about how special it was. Um, and and it's, not, it's not really due to anything other than the people that, that attended. I don't know if you have seen photos or video, but the overwhelming majority of people that went to that conference were young Assyrians. And um, that was so refreshing to see. Um, of course, the speakers were excellent. The program was fantastic. Um, but had it been a room full of, you know, Assyrians that are 50 and older, it probably wouldn't have had the same uh, effect. So it really, um, I, I think things are changing within our community, and hopefully that will have an effect. Whether it's on Capitol Hill or any of the various Assyrian organizations within Chicagoland or just kind of anywhere in general, you're often in spaces, you know, professionally and personally, where you're the only woman in the room. Well, what's that like? You know, if I'm going to be completely honest, it has been tough. Um, I have had these conversations with other Assyrian women who are involved in the community as well. Um, and it does seem that sometimes we do have to work twice as hard to, um, you know, earn the respect of, of some of the men in our community, but I am so fortunate to be surrounded by male and female colleagues that are really beyond that. And so I think when I was first getting involved, I struggled with that a bit, but now the people that I uh, have chosen to work with, you know, there, there are no... Would you say there. generation to generation that that's improved at all, or is there still a lot of uh, checking that we need to do in educating people on gender equality in spaces such as these? You know, I think that uh, there has been a significant change in, uh, in our community. Um, and I think if you look at the newer generations of Assyrians, you'll see that, at least in my view, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, that the Assyrian females are really stepping up. And, and I think that that was even clear at the conference, for instance, in Washington, D.C., I would say, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers, but I would say over 65% of the attendees were female. And I, I think that speaks volumes. And so I do see a change. Um, it's very positive. And, um, you know, you see women stepping into leadership roles. For instance, Atia Gamri in the um, Assyrian Confederation of Europe and Untashinu, who is now the president of the Center for Canadian Assyrian Relations. And so I do think that there is a change, and I think it's uh, certainly a positive one. So. You do all of this work round the clock, seemingly, uh, for the Assyrian nation, uh, traveling, uh, <laughs> writing, uh, cataloging your experiences. Rain, what do you like to do for fun? here and there once in a while. There's got to be a little bit of fun in your day-to-day your -day activities. Yeah, so um, that's a good question. I like to read a lot. Um, what do you like to read? <laughs> um, I do, so I, I like to read science fiction. 
Um, I like to read um, historical fiction, so it, it depends. Um, I also well, what are some of your favorite science fiction and historical fiction geez, stories? I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to um, say the Harry Potter yes, series. Yes, same. Yeah. There's no shame yeah. in that. Harry <laughs> no, Potter is excellent. Yeah. So I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I also love, you know, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, and of course, I am a person that reads the books first and uh, watches the movie. Or, in some cases, the show after. So you have read all the Harry Potter books and all the Game of Thrones books yeah, as well? Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's a lot of commitment. I don't know how anybody can read all of that, meanwhile maintaining your schedule with everything <laughs> as well. So that's no, major I, props. Uh, I used to have a strict schedule where I forced myself to read at least 30 minutes every night before bed. Um, but that was before Netflix got big, so I've sort of swapped that for Netflix. But I'm trying to force myself to get back into it. So right now I am um, currently rereading Reforging a Forgotten History by Sergeant Donovan. So that is Assyrian-related, but it's a great book, and I recommend it to anyone that has an interest in Assyrian uh, history or modern Assyrian history in Iraq. Do you ever feel like from the fictional sense of the, the sci-fi that you read in the historical fiction that that sort of builds up sort of um, creativity and empathy that you learn from reading fictional works? And does that apply at all to anything that you do with the Assyrian Policy Institute and with your travels or, you know, mentioning that you wanted to teach kids? Do you think that applies to any of that at all? Um, I'd like to think so. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of... There are a lot of good lessons embedded in the uh, Harry Potter series that I hope I apply to my life in general, not just, you know, my work. So. Any hidden talents, hobbies that we need to know about? Any hidden talents? Okay, I mean, I can't cook. Um. But that's, that's <laughs> fixed. I mean, I can't cook either, but I plan on learning. I don't know when, but I plan yeah. on it. Um, I don't know that I have any hidden talents. Um, I used to play volleyball. Did that, that's <laughs> some, when did you play volleyball? So I played throughout junior high, high school, and then I played in the Assyrian Volleyball League there you run go. by the Assyrian Athletic Club, which was a lot of fun. So in your travels and everything yeah. like that, obviously you, you see children in Iraq and everything like that. Uh, do you ever tell them about Harry Potter and playing volleyball and kind of like opening their minds up to stuff that maybe they don't think about uh, on a day-to-day -day basis with all the, the stress that they deal with and, and everything that goes on in their life? You know, I don't know that um, we've ever spoken about Harry Potter. Of course, I'd love to um, share Harry Potter with, uh, with anyone. I don't think... Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> Have you been in Chicagoland your entire life? I have. So I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in Skokie, and I've lived here my entire life. But now I am back and forth between Washington, D.C. and Skokie. Okay. How often do you go back and forth? Um, pretty often now since the establishment of the Policy Institute. So um, for the remainder of the year, I'll probably be in D.C. more than um, Skokie. How would you describe the Assyrian community specifically within Chicago and the surrounding area? You know, I think I would describe it as having a lot of potential. I think there are a lot of young Assyrians who 
are informed, who care, who want to get involved, but unfortunately don't have the opportunity to do so. And I think that there is a need for change in the Chicago Assyrian community. And I think most Assyrians would agree um, and would tell you the same thing. I think there are wonderful examples of positive change in our community happening across the country and worldwide. A wonderful example is the Assyrian American Association of Southern California. If you're not familiar with them, look them up on Facebook or on Instagram and um, you'll get a sense of the work that they do. It's really remarkable. And um, What specifically do they do that could be applicable to Chicago as well? You know, they're, they constantly have events happening. They have um, various gatherings, whether it's social or educational, where they're bringing the community together. And, and I'd like to see more of that happening here in Chicago. And I think that um, a lot of people talk about change, but they don't recognize their ability to create change. I'm not somebody that believes in waiting for change. I believe in creating change. And I think that there are there's a role for everyone. I think that there are Assyrians that are incredibly talented, that have so much to offer for the community, but sometimes they don't feel like they fit in or they don't have a place where they can, you know... Be themselves, be, for lack of a better word. Yeah, or to be... To, you know, be Assyrians. And so I think that um, slowly we're seeing that changing, but you do see younger Assyrians stepping up across the country. I don't know if you um, have seen the footage, but last year in August, I believe, of 2017, there was a group of young Assyrians who I believe are um, either in their late teens or early 20s that traveled from Chicago to Washington, D.C. to stage a protest at the United States Institute of Peace where the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the U.S., Bayan Rahman, was speaking. And so um, she was speaking on a panel or at an event, sorry, about um, the future of minorities in Iraq and as she was introduced, this group of 10 brave young Assyrians stood up and confronted her. Um, and they had signs and, and they were chanting. The video is um, on Facebook and, and on YouTube and elsewhere if you want to see it. But that was so inspiring to me and to so many others. Um, and I heard about that protest from my contacts in Iraq and from... Um, you know, my friends in the Yazidi community, everyone was so moved by what they did. And it might have been so small, but the ripple effects were so much wider than I think even they know. And I think that's really a good sign. I think the younger generation is stepping up. And I, I think that in the coming years, we will see change because this new generation of Assyrians um, has a lot of potential and uh, is, is stepping up to the plate. I see a lot of posts on social media uh, regarding a lot of the, the church youth conferences that go around, uh, one that just happened recently in Arizona. Uh, obviously, the uh, Assyrian National Convention itself has had a youth summit every year now for the last few years. 
Uh, you and I, I believe, met at the very first one in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, possibly. I didn't go. Oh, you did not go to that <laughs> yeah. one. Okay, so I met so you right around there. Okay, <laughs> well, you missed out on a, a great one. I'll, I'll tell you that. But, I mean, it's a, it's a great initiative. Um, do you think that it would benefit us to have more of that throughout the year and not just around convention time and, and things like that? Definitely. So I think that, uh, and I'm going to draw again upon the conference that happened this May, There, it, it created a space not only for Assyrians to learn more about the issues, but for young Assyrians to be among each other and to finally be in a space where they can you know, engage one another, discuss their perspectives on various issues, learn more, of course, um, but it, it also, it just created a space that we haven't necessarily had in the past, and I think that so many friendships are born um, out of this, and and really, in some cases, you know, it translates to action. So obviously you do have a, a big spot in that heart of yours for children and educating children. What's something that we can do as an, now an older generation? I'm 30, so uh, what, what can we do to be more inclusive of the younger generation and get them involved in the community? I think that we need to, number one, educate and empower them, but also just give them the space where they can flourish and where they can really take charge. They have certainly demonstrated their potential and their desire to take leadership roles in the community. And you mentioned leadership roles. Uh, granted, with the, the policy conference and the policy institute that you've co-founded, how important do you think it is for them to eventually grow into leadership roles within wherever they live, whether it's in the United States, Canada, and become uh, elected representatives in their current nation? I think that everybody has a role to play. So while some may, you know, pursue uh, elected office, others might contribute to our community in other ways. And I think you can just look at, you know, people that we have working on Assyrian issues and affairs across the, the globe. Thomas Isaac, who is in Sweden and founded the Nineveh Press, his, the work that he's doing is incredible and invaluable, really. Some of us who might not know what the Nidma Press is, go ahead and, and let us know what that is all about, actually. So the Nidma Press publishes new books and reprints old and rare books and periodicals related to Assyrians. And so it could be about the Assyrian language, literature, history, and culture. And, uh, and so recently, I think in 2016, he published a... Uh, collection on writings of Assyrians by Dr. David B. Purley. So if Thomas hadn't taken the initiative to do that, all of Dr. Purley's writings would essentially be lost or would be inaccessible to um, Assyrians around the globe. So you don't necessarily have to be a elected official, but archiving old writings and information obviously just Definitely. as important. Yeah, or teaching the language or you know, creating art, or I mean, there's something for everyone, and uh, and it's nice to see Assyrians, especially young Assyrians, stepping in to fill those roles, or where they see a, a void, you know, creating um, something new to fill it. 
Rain, you have a wonderful story. Your involvement is indescribable and in how valuable it is to the community and how important you are to everybody. I thank you very much for your time. And until next time, thank you for listening.